G'day, I'm Mark Pesci, and welcome to the first show in 2015 for This Week in Startups Australia. We've got a fantastic show for you today. Cameron Adams will talk to us about how his startup Canva used design-centered development to grow his business a thousand percent over the last year. Later, we'll talk to Airtree VC partner Craig Blair about some of the lessons Australian startup entrepreneurs need to learn in order to get funding. This Week in Startups Australia proudly welcomes our new sponsors, Optus Innovate, providing support to the Australian startup community, and Newsmodo, providing quality, relevant, and timely news content. Canva is probably the hottest tech startup in Australia. In 2014, the web-based layout and publication tool went from strength to strength, capturing investor mindshare and a few key hires, like Guy Kawasaki, who is the original tech evangelist. Now, the success of Canva really came as no surprise. The company's co-founder and chief product officer, Cameron Adams, has established a reputation of one of the brightest sparks in digital design. It's my great pleasure to welcome Cam Adams as 2015's first guest on This Week in Startups Australia. Welcome, Cam. I'm very honored, Mark, and such a, such a sterling introduction as well. Uh, and well-earned. So, you are the chief product officer in a firm that is more or less design-focused, design-driven. But that's not really your career path. A few years ago, you were working here in Sydney for Google as part of the Google Wave team, right? Correct. And how many engineers were involved in that? Uh, it sort of oscillated. They started with uh, 30 and it eventually grew to 50. Okay. And how many designers were involved in that? Uh, other than me, there were none. So, so we have this 50 to 1 ratio between coders and designers. Now, Google Wave, for those of you who missed it, was a communication tool that was entirely browser, JavaScript, magical, server, front-end, back-end based. It, it, was, it was amazing. It was a moving target. It was a project to keep the Sydney office at the forefront of Google, but it also didn't last. And Cam, do you, do you remember sort of what happened there? Was that because there were too many engineers and not enough design or was it that Google changed direction or? I think, I think there was a magnificent vision for Wave and it was technically profound. Like the stuff they were doing on the product had never been done before right. in the browser. Um, so they had this vision, they had the technical prowess, but there was kind of a bit in the middle missing where the the technology that we had was being delivered to users to actually fulfill that vision. Um, and, you know, that's kind of a vital step in there of actually connecting with your users, figuring out what they want to do with the product and making it useful for their problems. Um, the vision was this utopia of collaboration and communication, uh, but you know some of the details just weren't quite worked out. Some of the details? Most of the details. Most of the details. And this is the thing, because I remember really being trying to be a dedicated Wave user, but also never, never really understanding where it fit in terms of my workflow and my work practice. And, and so, so Wave was, I guess, a vision. It was also, in a sense, the first time anyone really tried to basically build an operating system out of JavaScript. And it was before JavaScript was as mature as it is today and as capable as it is today. So it pushed a lot of boundaries. But one of the boundaries that it didn't push because there was this 50 to 1 ratio was it really didn't push the boundaries of 
of design in the browser. Yeah, it was it was difficult to to sort of synthesize everything that was going on to, into a coherent product. So they had uh, four or five product managers who were kind of had their own different domains about what they were interested in Wave for. So one person was interested in Wave for enterprise. Mm. Another person was interested in Wave for consumers. Another was interested in sort of Wave for data, like accessing data and manipulating data. So having all these different sort of viewpoints meant that a lot of features went into the product, but it was very schizophrenic. So someone landed in it, they were hit with 10 different features, one of which they might actually use, and there was a lot of confusion involved. And they'd have to cognitively ignore the other nine features because it's the only way you'd be able to work in the interface. Precisely. I mean, a lot of of product design is about focus Mm. and getting down to the bare minimum of what is useful in your product. Um, And that's something we didn't do very well on Wave. Um, And, you know, even on the team... You know, there was lots of discussion about what Wave actually was. Right. And some people thought it was a consumer thing. Some people thought it was a magnificent spreadsheet collaboration tool. Um, uh, And there was never any real resolution as to what that was. And that came through. Like, we didn't have clear marketing materials. It's like, this product is for you. This is what it's going to do for you. So, in in a sense, it was, I mean, it was almost like people were taking the internet and saying, well, the internet's for this. No, the internet's for this. No. Well, actually, it's for all of those things, but it can't be all of those things at once. Precisely. And I think, you know, something, I I saw a great tweet the other day that if email were introduced today, it would never survive. Uh, Just because of the openness of email and the requirement that uh, email be very open and it's a totally, you know, people use it in vastly different ways. Like even just the difference between inbox zero and a stream of communication, you know, People can't decide on that or what a star means. One of, one of my friends has 40,000 emails in his inbox. And I think I look at that and I'm just like, oh, my God, that's chaos. It, it frightens me. My blood runs cold. But he just searches, right? Because it's all indexed and yeah. he finds anything when he wants it. And that's how we all end up using Gmail now, right? It's just don't really use inboxes in Gmail. It's just all sort of in the stream. But I, I come from this era when everything went into nice little boxes and on my Macintosh at home where I do most of my communication, I have all these nice little boxes and everything goes into its box. And these are all just design conventions, right? You sound as perfectly as OCD as I am. Um, <laughs> yeah, I love I love coming in and just seeing a completely blank inbox of perfectly managed things. <laughs> because the world is not actually like that at all. Yeah. All right. So, so, so Google wound down Wave, which was, I, and I remember, it was a shock. It was an absolute shock. But you then basically went on this work holiday into America and worked in an environment. Was that still at Google? Yeah, still at Google. So, I mean, Google's famous for its kind of flexible work policy mm-hmm. and the ability for someone to find their own way in their own product. So I kind of went on a vision quest for three months, talking to different teams, seeing what was going on, what was interesting, and seeing where we could contribute the most. Mm-hmm. Um, so we tried out a few different things. We were we um, actually worked with the search team for a little bit on some interface ideas there, but we eventually ended up at Google Plus. Um, mm-hmm. So I went to the states and did an intensive two week stint there because Google Plus was unreleased at the time. They had a massive team behind it, um, uh, more than 200 people working on it. Uh, and the design team alone was, I think, 25 to 30 people all working on this product that wasn't fully defined, figuring out the interface, how it was going to look on iOS, how it was going to look on the web, on you know desktop apps, on Android. So did they start from design thinking or did they start from functional thinking? 
Uh, it did start from design thinking. So the the essence of Google Plus was circles and mm-hmm. sort of this deeper understanding of your relationship with people. Mm-hmm. So people often get frustrated on Facebook. It's kind of like barfing on everyone you know. There's no real control over who you talk to and having private conversations and that type of thing. And there's a researcher at Google who did a fair bit of research into how people communicate in real life and like what your friendship circles are, what you share with them versus your family versus business. Yeah. Um, and his his breakthrough was that, you know, communication happens to different circles. You don't communicate the diff- same way to, to different groups and that we should try and replicate that online, which was what circles became and which was kind of the genesis for Google+. Okay. And Google+, Plus is praised for being very clean, for very pure. It's not cluttered at all. And so in that sense, I guess the design thinking was reflected. And, and you know, I mean, people bag on Google Plus for not having this huge user base, but in fact, it's been growing quite consistently. I think it's probably up to what, about a half a billion users now? Or yeah, something. I'm not sure of the numbers, but yeah, it is a very, uh, it's very underground growth machine. Um, and yeah, not many people, I think, realize what it's actually doing. Yeah. Okay, so how did you move then from Googling to Canva? What what gave you? I'm assuming that the brainwave for Canva came from your brain. It didn't actually come from my brain. So ah. I left. I left Google kind of fed up with corporate world. Uh, Google was actually the first real job I've ever had. Um, and and let's face it, it's Google, so it's not even that real. Yeah, right? it kind of, it kind of spoiled me for actually going to anyone else and having a having a real boss. So the only the only way I could really go was to start up my own business again. Um, and I left Google with two other engineers there, um, and we were still kind of bitten by the communication bug. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a joke on the X Wave team that everyone who is on the Wave team is doomed to to want to reinvent communications every five years. So we were we were determined that email could be done better and consuming email could be done better. Mm. So we actually started a, a startup called Fluent, um, which focused on the email experience and dealing with it in a stream-like manner, mm-hmm. um, sort of trying to eliminate the cruft that's built up over the last 20 years of, of email development. Right. Okay. And so Fluent then... There was there were a number of products that came out around that time, right? So Inbox would be another one of those products, not Google Inbox, but the the other uh, Mailbox. Mailbox. I'm sorry. There were a number, and I saw a couple at the launch conference that yeah. launched around that time that were all designed to sort of make it make email more sensible. Yeah, and there's a bit of hubris that kind of makes me feel that we came out first, but um, mm. uh, yeah, definitely there was. I think sort of around 2011, 2012, there was very much a resurgence in email ideas and of wanting to uh, reinvent email or make it better. Um, and Mailbox is obviously the biggest success story out of that. Um, we we released, I think, probably six to nine months before Mailbox went public. So, I mean, they, they obviously had it in development. But, yeah, again, we, we had a very stream-based model, uh, taking action from your inbox, directly from your inbox without having to click back and forth through messages. And uh, one thing we we're really excited about was kind of a, a summarization of an email and the action you could take from it. Mm. So if you receive a group on email, there's a buy button right there. Or if there, you receive a Twitter notification email, you can reply right there. Right. Um, so kind of using email as almost an with API inten- to other intents, services. Yes. You know, like the, the equivalent of Android intents, that every email has its own intent attached to it, depending on what the source of the email yeah. is. Yes. Um, and I think Google... Google are interested in that area, obviously, because they released the the Inbox product right. uh, a few months ago, which is 
you know, features very similar thinking. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci, and it is my extreme pleasure to welcome the very first sponsor for Series 2 of This Week in Startups Australia, Optus Innovate. I've known about Optus Innovate. I have been working with Optus Innovate for years, and they're the folks who are always there to provide startups with support, with funding, and everything that the community needs. Uh, Alfred Lowe and Peter Wynn, you've probably met them if you do anything in startups in Australia because they're always at all of the events. They're always supporting. They're awesome to work with. I've worked with them on and off for the last couple of years myself. And they really do help the community out. So Fishburners, for example, their biggest funder is Optus Innovate and Innovation Bay. Again, all of these organizations are funded by and supported by the amazing work that Alfred and Peter are doing at Optus Innovate. And in addition, they're active local VCs. They're looking for Series A investment opportunities. And of course, they can help connect you with Optus for partnership, for business development, everything. You can find out more about Optus Innovate at Optus Innovate. That's O-P-T-U-S-I-N-N-O-V-8 dot com dot au. Hi, you're listening to This Week in Startups Australia, and we're talking to Cam Adams from Canva. All right, so from Fluent, you moved on to Canva. Was Canva already going when you were invited to join? Uh, not really. It was, it was just in its genesis. There was a there was a product previously that Mel and Cliff, my co-founders, had been working on. Um, and they had focused on the school yearbook market um, and letting schools create their own magazines. Mm-hmm. And they had written a, a horrible flex app that had let schools do that for a few years. I think they'd been running it for four or five years at that stage. Um, and they they got some learnings from that into you know how non-designers deal with design, what sort of product they're looking for, what sort of problems there are. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been lots of requests from yearbook creators for something similar for other things. Okay. Um, so they were just exploring what that company would be if they if they created it. Um, and I was introduced to them by my old boss from Google Wave, which is Lars Rasmussen, mm-hmm. who's the founder of Google Maps. Um, and he had asked me to go in and, and talk to them about some technology choices. So they were looking at moving away from Flash. Uh, and sensibly. Sensibly. So it's a good move in hindsight. Um, and I, as well as being a designer, I kind of straddle the technology design barrier. Mm. So, um, all of my design is very tied up in the implementation. So I know a fair bit about HTML5 and JavaScript and that sort of thing. Um, so I chatted to them, uh, funny story. I walked into their office and, and Mel was like, oh, you're here for the job interview. And I'm like, I don't want to work for you guys. <laughs> uh, they were interviewing for a flex developer for their for their yearbook application, and I chatted to them, uh, heard about their idea, thought it was kind of interesting, then went on my merry way. Um, Fluent hadn't quite wound up then, and over the next few months, kind of their idea was percolating in my mind, mm-hmm. and you know, every time I thought about it, it was really interesting, and I, I hit them back up about three or four months later, and asked them where they were at, and they were like, yeah, we're just we're just getting it together now. Would you like to help us, you know, build this thing and be a, be our technical co-founder in a sense? Um, and you know, it was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. Which is a role that you've now called the chief product officer. So, what does that actually mean in practice as chief product officer? 
Yeah, I think I've seen the I've seen very many C titles bandied mm. around at different companies, and I think it's with good reason. Every company has its own genetic makeup and mm. requires different people to to sort of lead. Uh, for our for our product, the product is you know essential to the success of the business. Um, so it's key that there's a keen focus on the product and what that means to users and what users do with it and what they think of our company is based through the product. So having someone thinking constantly about what we're offering to users, what their experience is, mm-hmm. and you know, just figuring out what really turns on our users is 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 you know part of what drives Canva. Okay, so so you oversee do you do you do you oversee engineering, design, development, research, all of that? My my role has changed over the past almost three years. So very early on. It was just me, Mel, and Cliff sitting around a table, mm-hmm. uh, and me and Mel would work with mock-ups, figuring out features, you know, what's going to be most useful to our users, and I would take those mock-ups and then turn them into working prototypes. Um, so I know my way around code and create can create, you know, production quality code, roughly production quality. Um, <laughs> All. Production quality code is roughly production quality. Yeah, there's there's definitely a bit of founder code buried <laughs> in our product somewhere, but you know, using those prototypes, you can get it in front of users as quickly as possible. Figure out what's working, figure out what's not, um, and we brought on a couple of developers after that to sort of work with me and build out the broader product. And I was committing code to production for probably about a year and a half. Um, probably just stopped in the last year. I do touch it do, every now. Do and you miss then. it? Uh, you do miss it. You do miss it. There's, I always, I try to make it a habit at least once a fortnight, just going in and changing colors on something and committing that, and then so, causing all the servers to crash and someone has to fix it up. So you've become, I mean, you've increasingly been kicked into a much more management role. So you are overseeing. How many people do you have working for you? Uh, so now we have. So I look after the design team. I was looking after the front end team until much better front enders came along. Mm. So they're they're motoring along nicely by themselves. But our design team, there's. Five of us in Sydney mm-hmm. and four in Manila, and Manila is growing quite rapidly. Um, there's a large component of our product that's based around graphic design. Um, so we offer graphic design to people, and there's a bunch of layouts right. that we have in our app. Um, and the graphic designers help create that and determine, you know, graphic styles that people will be using. So, what is a pizza shop? You know, what what's their fly going to look like? What's going to be most useful to them? So they they figure that out and get our content into the editor. Um, yeah, so I'm helping to to manage those guys and make sure our, our output is as high quality as possible. Given that the last year in particular has been a rocket ship ride in Canva, presumably, you, how many employees are there totally at Canva? Uh, there's 40 now. Okay, so that's that's a lot, right? And that means that there's now politics in the organization and all sorts of interesting things that probably weren't the case when you came on board. Definitely. So how have you been managing that? How has the team been managing that growth? Um, it's been interesting. We try and we try and keep our finger on the pulse as much as possible. Mm-hmm. I think with any structure, it can it can grow to a certain level, and then there's a breaking point where you have to change it right. uh, often radically. Um, we actually did that at the start of this year. So last year we had a few projects going out, including our iPad app, um, our more social involvement with the site, um, and also our design marketplace. So getting graphic designers onto Canva and getting them selling their work, um, which were three quite big things. Um, and 
looking at how we manage those things and the deadlines we hit or didn't hit with those things, we've tried to kind of improve that this year and given a lot more autonomy to our teams. So we've set up each project as its own team that can make its own decisions, doesn't necessarily have to talk to me, Mel and Cliff all the time, um, but obviously we're there when big decisions need to be made. Uh, but letting each team feel in control of their destiny and have a say in what direction their project goes in. That takes a lot of trust, though. I mean, you have to really trust the people in those teams. How did you get to that level of trust with those teams? I think you just work with them. Uh, and last year was a great baptism of fire. You know, we saw we saw how well our teams worked and how well they pulled together and how much effort they put into the product and how much passion they have for the company. And seeing that made us trust them. Um, and you have to, you definitely have to work with people to engender that trust. Mm. Yeah, no, seriously, because it, it, it's a relationship that evolves. You find out what someone's weaknesses and strengths are. What made you want to bring Kawa, a guy Kawasaki into a very modern business? I mean, he, you know, he's maintained a presence, but he's really thought of as being very much the first age of, of personal computing. How? What was the idea behind bringing him in as someone to evangelize and to be a spokesperson for Canva? We saw a lot of value in him as an evangelist and spreading our message. I mean, that's one of the core parts of, of marketing is getting your message out to people that uh, who wouldn't otherwise be aware of your product. Mm -hmm. And and he's a master of that. You know, he's proven it by his reach on social media that he's he's managed to keep up with over the past five years. So he's, he's not just the old school guy from the 80s that sells Macs. Yeah. You know, he has kept up and is a great marketer of the current age. Um, and when... When we sort of found out that he was using Canva, it, it blew our socks off and we reached out to him and there was an exchange and somehow it ended up that we uh, managed to snag him. How many people are using Canva right now? We have 1.4 million users as of yesterday. And that's all around the world. Yes. It's largely, there's a big uh, proportion that's US, but it's, mm. it's, it's spread very nicely around the world, which is, is quite pleasing. And a year ago, how many were using Canva? A year ago. A year ago, we would have been about four months from release. So I think it would be about 100,000 then. Okay. So you've grown 15, 14, 15 times over the last year. Yeah. And that's, and you know, it's reasonable to assume that by this time next year, you might be talking 10 million users. Very or, hopefully. Or more. What does the Canva experience for the user look like in a year or two or three years? Where is design going around this? Because this is in some ways, and one reason why Kawasaki's maybe a good fit is because this is the, what desktop publishing looks like in 2015 now, right? It's not PageMaker, it's not a laser printer, it's a lovely tool that's all running in the browser. I think uh, in a year, I mean, the gradual evolution of Canva will be that it meets each person's needs very specifically. And so it has a lot of, you're going to need a lot of depth to be able to do that. A lot of depth. And, you know, the marketplace is part of that. Having a, but essentially the world's graphic designers help us bring graphic design to the masses is a large part of that. And yeah, anticipating the different needs of particular niches. So what is a, what is a hairdresser going to need that's different from a, right. a, a pizza company or a social media marketer? And one of the signs of success of any ecosystem is, is it making money for people who don't own the ecosystem? So do you have graphic designers who are now making good money from putting their products up on Canva and selling we, them through Canva? Yeah, we, we have we have sent out a lot of money to contributors. Um, some of our contributors at the moment are earning over $1,000 a month. Okay. Um, and, you know, 
that's with very little you know, exploration on our part as to that revenue stream. We've been focused largely on growth for the past past year, user growth. Um, but this year, we're definitely focusing on monetization and revenue streams. Um, and there's lots of plans in the work there. But the part that we do have in, the, in at the moment is our, our $1 per use license. And that, that has seen month-on-month growth. Uh, that's been really fantastic. All right. As a final question for an entrepreneur who is developing, how do you think that a developer should be thinking about design in terms of their product? What is their relationship to design? I think their relationship to design is just understanding their users and creating the best possible experience for them. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have a pixel-perfect design that looks beautiful or has the most incredible animations. It's about creating an, an application that serves your users in the best manner possible. Cam Adams, thank you very much for being our first guest in 2015 on This Week in Startups Australia. Thank you, Mark. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. When we're recording This Week in Startups Australia, Felix and I take a lot of photos of all the guests on this lovely couch that I'm sitting on here. We post them to our Tumblr, which is at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. You can go there. You can find those photos. You can get links to the websites for the folks that we're talking to and some of their great products. You can get the SoundClouds. You can find out more about the show. Everything is on our Tumblr at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. One of the most promising signs in a tech startup ecosystem is its ability to continue to attract venture capital. VC is a bet on the future, and not just for a single company, but for an entire sector. The new kids on the block in Australian tech venture capital are Sydney-based Airtree VC. They came out of nowhere last year with a $60 million fund and a brief to find the best Australian startups. One of the partners at Airtree VC, Craig Blair, joins us on This Week in Startups Australia. Welcome, Craig. Thank you very much, Mark. Great to be here. So tell us about where Airtree came from. So you, you said the new kids on the block. Well, we don't feel that. We've been doing this for a while. So we, we've, um, myself and my partner, Daniel Petrie, have had two previous funds. Mm-hmm. Um, one was an investment company uh, called Netus, which uh, was uh, ran from about 2004 to 2012, and uh, it, uh, it it we were lucky enough to 4x cash on cash in that business and and build a number of great businesses like Reach Local, Wayfair, Downstream Marketing, Allure Media, the video company Switchwise. So there's a there was a very you know well performing fund, and and prior to that. Uh, uh, Daniel Petrie and uh, and Jeremy Phillips had a had a fund called eCorp, which brought in uh, way back before when most of the listeners were probably in nappies, eBay and MSN and Charles wow. Wild and Mons, so very very first generation sort of internet companies. Okay, so all right, so so that that said, there's a very good pedigree here. What led to the foundation of Airtree last year? Well, I think that's a, okay, there's a couple of things there. One, yeah, one is. You're lucky enough to have to to have the opportunity to be a venture uh, partner. It's it's one of the coolest jobs in the world. You get to work with wonderfully ambitious and and precocious and smart talented. You aren't. You aren't I mean, I would also think. Let me just 
say that it's also got to be one of the most challenging jobs because you're really always keeping an eye on, am I going to be able to earn back? Does this business meet? Is this business performing? Well, that's true. But I think you, I, mean, I think you've, in the context of real, you know, you're living in a risky world and you're not comfortable with that, then you shouldn't be doing this. But if you, if you understand, you, you enjoy risk and you understand that there's going to be returns from risk, then that's that's okay. Um so, so yeah. You know, one is it's a, it's 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 great fun. Right. Two, two, two is uh, you know we 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 you, if you believe some of the narrative that, that venture's broken in Australia, and it's true that most venture firms have not performed very well in Australia, and there's a whole bunch of reasons why that's the case. But we're lucky enough to have two funds return four dollars for every dollar invested to investors, and that puts us in the top five percent globally. And I think you know we we're keen to prove that venture can work. And as you said in the intro, a really important part of an ecosystem. Uh, growing and developing is is a thriving uh, venture community that mm-hmm. needs to back those companies, and we're keen to be a part. It won't just be us; it'll be many other smart venture firms out there. Square Pegs, another notable um, um, VC, where we're going to help build this ecosystem together. All right, so you guys set up shop, and you basically said, "Look, we got sixty million dollars." send us your business plans and that's pretty much what happened and so that was what about six months ago that you did yeah we spent uh the first half of 2014 well actually we were lucky enough to raise a fund in about uh, two months so that was all right wait let's stop there and because i i I had uh, rick baker on this sofa in december telling me that it took him an incredibly long time to raise the 30 million how were you able to raise so quickly well, I think they did a great job at raising that, but I think raising your first fund is really hard. And I think you know so we're it's track record. We're lucky enough to be able to point to a track record of mm-hmm. delivering returns for investors, and I think if you can show returns, there's enough interest in this space for right. you know high net worth family offices to to want to put some money this way. So this sort of puts paid to the lie that Australians will only invest in mining and real estate, right? I mean, if you can show them a track record, Australians will invest like anyone else. I, 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 we found the journey very interesting. We we, we knew some. Some family offices, we've got 17 of the wealthiest family offices and, and syndicates backing us. And I think we, some of them we knew were interested in the space. They'd previously made investors mm-hmm. in the space. But we've got a range of family offices who've never done venture before, you know, from property mining companies. And they did, they're just seeing the disruption that across many, many industries. They're seeing the rest of their portfolio being turned on its head by, you know, usually digital led disruption. And they want to have uh, some exposure to that. So I think the, there's interest there if you can show a track record. How tech savvy would a lot of these family offices be are you having to do a lot of education with them? Yes, yeah, so there are it ranges from 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 family offices who come from media, so they are sort of somewhat tech savvy because they've seen and they also understand disruption they, they very understand well. What happens if it, you know, the, yeah. when the internet comes through an industry? Others have no idea. I mean, they really just really want to understand what is this internet thing and how does it work and why and why, and why will it disrupt? You know. Health, education, you know, media, retail, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, they uh, we spent a lot of time with them, educating them, um, giving them feedback loops because that's part of the reason they want to get involved. Right. So, do you feel that they're learning, and as this fund matures and tips over, that they will be in a place where they feel comfortable to go into another fund? Is that part of what's going on here? Well, uh, look, I think I'm not, I'm not sure how good we are at educating them. We, 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 we enjoy it. We spend time. They're super smart, super super right. talented people. So we always always get a lot of those conversations. But I think ultimately their interest will come from delivering returns. I mean, I think, you know, you, 
we could have some wonderfully educated uh, family officers, but if the returns suck, then they may not come back. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, all right. So you managed to do in two months, which again is quite a feat. You raised this money in the first half of 2014, and then you basically stuck your hand up and said, okay, Australia, where we really want to fund the best tech and, and is is there any specific focus that airtree has within technology yeah so we we there is so we have spent the last 15 years being very thematic based we tend to look at um venture um on a global perspective we look to like to understand what's happening in the us uk um, and be informed. And that could be, and what, what does that mean? It could be, here's a business model that's looming that's going to get traction, so therefore you should look, start looking at investing in this similar companies in Australia. It could be that there's a large platform being built somewhere, which ultimately will win, gives a platform play, and and being a local Me Too is going to be really tough against a really high, well-funded, large platform, you know, dev team with 100 people in, in the US. So, so um, our focus is... Um, we 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 have a global perspective. We're looking for regional businesses, which is a bit different from other some other. Oh, so you are looking there. for regional businesses, we're, not we're, just for global businesses. We 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 um, have a global perspective, but looking for regional plays. Okay. You know, we uh, unashamedly look. You know, we we unashamedly looking for Australian businesses that can be built, and grown in Australia or the region. And it doesn't mean we are afraid of internationalization. We've mm. had plenty of our other businesses go international, but. It doesn't have to be the case, you know. Yeah. Well, this is also, just, just to bring this in, this is a very interesting question that's almost all Australian startups ask themselves. So you have, for example, GoCatch and Airtasker, which seem very satisfied with the fact that the market in Australia is going to be enough for them for some time to come in the future. Mm-hmm. And so they don't really have international or even re- particularly regional aspirations. And then you have other companies um, like Stashed, which is basically a global retailing brand yeah. from day one. Do you think that startups are born with a particular focus or do they grow into a particular focus between international and regional? I, I, there are some there, there are some inherently regional aspects of, of some business models. So you know, things like the local marketplaces you mentioned, like taxis or, or, mm. or errands, clearly are regional marketplaces. And you can have lots of different regional plays, right. but it's, so not, it's, not, model. it's not an international pl- uh, model. Uh, so I think that's kind of part of the reason. And, and in part, part of it, I think entrepreneurs... You know, is the DNA of an entrepreneur is, is you know how big do you think? I mean, I, I, we we wrestle with this one. We think there's a there's probably too too many entrepreneurs come in and they've been encouraged by investors or in some cases venture to think big, and mm-hmm. we'd rather than think well. And I often say to you know entrepreneurs, you know, look, building a hundred million dollar business in Australia, it, it may not be a billion dollar business, and you may not be in the front cover of ties, but if you can make thirty, forty million dollars, and you can build a hundred million dollar business. That's nothing to be embarrassed about. So, <laughs> no, hell know, no. that's, that's okay. You know, so so um, you know, you look at the risk, the risk return payoff. You're trying to build a global business. There are some incredible global businesses out of Australia, amazing. But there's not many. And if you're trying to build a thematic around a fund, you know, I, I struggle to find how you're going to, you know, going to, you're going to, you're going to be able to find the next at last year or retail or light or slight minor, you know, systematically. Right. Well, I mean, and I mean, it's not clear that you can do that systematically anywhere. I mean, it's just that there are fewer companies here, so there are fewer companies that are going to be at that far end of the curve. Just as there are in America, there are still only even if there's a hundred times the scale. That only means there's just a hundred times the companies. It doesn't mean there's a thousand times. There's no network effect around that. It's that the the unicorns are the unicorns. Yeah, well, that's that is true. Although I, I would say that I mean. 
it's probably easier to build a unicorn in a large marketplace because you've got the ecosystem to support you there. You're more likely to find the right engineer or they'll get the timing right, the right amount of venture capital. And uh, and while there has been some unicorns come out of Australia, you know, it, it, it's probably not the norm. Yeah. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci, and I'm really excited to welcome our new sponsor, Newsmodo. Newsmodo crafts stories of all kinds for news channels, publications, brands. They draw on the expertise of more than 14,000 contributors worldwide. Newsmodo helps brands connect with new and existing audiences through written and visual content. In 2015, news and reporting and insight, they're no longer just the domain of traditional media. Forward-thinking marketing managers and brands leverage the power of Newsmodo's journalistic platform to deliver compelling news, to deliver insights, to deliver perspectives across owned, earned, and paid media. Learn more at newsmoto.com. And we're back with This Week in Startups Australia talking to Craig Blair, who's a partner in Airtree VC. All right, Craig. So you've got your $60 million fund, and now you've raised your hand. Australia, send us your business plans. And I have this image of you just sort of being showered and just crushed by this, by this flow of business plans. How many have you looked at? Well, we looked at uh, over 220 businesses so far so in those far. six months, uh, which is interesting because I think in the whole of our experience in NetUs, which was a six-year journey, we looked at about 600 businesses over six years. So we're, we're, we're clearly seeing at a higher, higher cadence. Now, I think some of that's probably we saw all the things that everyone else said no at. So I think there's a, you know, anybody puts a shingle out, we'll see a, we'll see a bump initially. Right. But I think the the other side is is clearly more businesses in, in, in more business being created, the incubators, accelerators, the early stage community is much better developed, and so there's just more deal flow. Okay, so you've taken a look at 220 and counting plans because I assume they're still coming across the transom every day. Because in fact, when I talked to Paul, who's one of your other partners, he, you were only at I think 190, mm-hmm. which was just before Christmas time. So clearly, it's still mm-hmm. going on. And how many of those? businesses when you, you've all said and done, we'll, we'll take a look at your criteria in a second, but how many of them in the end do you really think represent fundable Airtree VC businesses? Uh, I would say that there is probably you know 10 businesses in there that we would have funded, maybe even maybe in 15 that we would have funded if terms were, were, were right, and the and uh, so there's, there's, there 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 are enough there, and we've we've actually done two two deals. Mm-hmm. We've got another two we're working on, so I think we'll have three or four in the first six to seven eight months. Uh, but I'd say there's probably ten that would have been funded, you know, say for one or two. Issues. So about five percent of the plans that you've seen so far yeah. are meet the air tree criteria. Yeah. And what are those criteria? Well, we're looking for businesses with. We're a Series A funder, so we're looking to invest somewhere between you know two and eight million dollars. We're looking into sectors where we have some domain experience. So you know, we've built marketplaces. Myself and my partner have built over seventeen invested and built over seventeen businesses over the last couple of decades. You know, marketplaces, e-commerce businesses, media businesses, ad tech businesses. So something you know, business we know something about. Mm-hmm. You know, we won't do hardware. We won't do hardcore software. Uh, as I said before, we we're interested in the regional play. We really we really like a business that can stack up. If you can build a, a get a great outcome for the for all stakeholders, in just in a regional play, that's fabulous. There may be some international expansion operations that flow. 
Um, and, uh, you know, there's some idea of traction. You can see that the model's going to work in some way. And that might be because you can see a Miku model working in the US, or you can see that the current KPIs are really well understood and they're going in the right direction in Australia. All right. So the very first deal was... Um, Porsche. Porsche. That's right. Which is actually not an Australian firm. Is that correct? Well, it 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 isn't, it, it isn't. It, it is fifty uh, percent of its business is in Australia, so it's 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 one it's in it's in thirteen different markets, right? But its largest markets in Australia, and its fastest growing markets in Australia. All right, so and what does as, what does Porsche do? So Porsche is a marketplace, a collaborative consumption model for pet owners and pet miners. So think of it as a as an Airbnb for pets. If you're a pet owner and you uh, and you were going to go on holidays, your, your possible solutions are you put them in a hotel, which is often expensive, right. or you rely on friends. And if you're a, there are people out there who want to look after pets for the weekends and they want to make a bit of money for doing so. So we joined them together in a marketplace. It's underpinned by trust and community. And so so it's another connected labor marketplace. I mean, I've had so many people on right. the show now. We're going to have Jen George on the show next time from uh, One Shift and really starting to understand how labor is now becoming in the age of the smartphone and appification a much more fluid thing. So you basically have a pool of people who need a service and then a pool of people who are really happy to make that service and the app and the firm are doing the market making there. It, it is. I think there's a different, different nuances of those things. I mean, I think the sort of one shift model is very much sort of you know connecting labor looking for a, for, 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 for an outcome. In this case, it's, I think it's, it's a, there's, a, there's a way of um, un, unleashing latent uh, demand and supply. So mm -hmm. there are people who who would pay to look after pets. There right. are people who would just want to look after a pet and they currently get money. So that's the creating that's creating a whole new ecosystem that was previously not there. Uh, and clearly for a pet owner it's a it's a you know, it's a lower cost solution and more convenient. All right, so what's the second business that you've actually We announced? haven't announced that one yet, so okay. I can't talk about that one, but we right, cuz I didn't think I'd seen it, yeah, so yeah, I was yeah, wondering yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah. All right. This still means that there were around 210-ish plans that did not make the cut. And it seems to me, I, when I first heard that figure from Paul, I was a little bit shocked. But it also sounded to me like the people who were presenting you these plans didn't really understand what you were looking for, that they didn't try to pre-qualify themselves. They just sort of sent you a plan because they thought they might get some money from you. What's your own feeling on that? Look, it, it's... There are certainly, uh, well, I mean, I should say that 220 excluded crazies. You know, there are people from from Uzbekistan who wanted to raise money for their donkeys. But I think there's, there, there are there are certain. I mean, inventory is a, it's a long term game and it's mm -hmm. a lots of conversations. So some of those, two, those those 220 were just too early. They hadn't. They were still working the model. They wanted to. They were wanted to test the waters. They wanted to understand what we were looking at. And we came to the view that. It, it, it could be a great business, um, but it probably is still at the early at an angel funding round or a micro VC round. So that's kind of you know one bucket, I'd say. Okay. Um, um, I think there are others where uh, the um, I think we see a lot of areas where the product itself hasn't been really well thought through, and you know I think there's a big gap between getting a minimum viable product out and actually having a beautiful product, which is actually starting to see real traction with consumers. So right. I think it's a that's a gap we see often. I think the the third one, I think, which I think we, we pause at, and it's particularly the Series A funding, is understanding the unit unit economics. You know, I think if you, because you know, if we're going to invest five, 
six, seven, eight million dollars into a business, if you pour business money into the top of a funnel, that funnel's leaking and it's not working well enough, then that's not good for the business. So here's a question, and Paul did mention this. Do entrepreneurs who are so busy trying to get an MVP out the door really think about their unit costs? You know, how many times do you actually see the, yourselves asking that question and not being able to get a very solid oh, answer? Almost every time. I think it's, you know, we've got a, we've got a blog looming where we think this is one, one education piece we can do for the market is at the right time, a right. business needs to understand its new economics and it needs to understand how that's going to ch- change over time. Certainly you think you're raising money because if you don't understand that, you don't have a business. Yeah, well, you don't you don't know where your money's going, right? So you you don't well you don't know if you have a business. That's the thing. It's not that you don't have a business. You don't know if you have a business unless you can actually answer that question. And it is interesting because you know, having had a hardware business, I understand the right. harder businesses cannot get away from this. It's all about unit costs, yeah. Right, it's right. all about unit costs. It's the only thing you can ever yeah, think right, about right. when you're doing a hardware business right. because there's actual atoms involved, not right. just bits. You, that you would understand that discipline, but that discipline yeah. is, is is rare in, in the sort of you know the, in the in the sort of very fairy world of yeah. software. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And this is you know everything like customer acquisition costs, marketing costs, sales costs, yeah, lifetime value. Well, yeah, what do yeah. you do with a variable cost? What are your variable costs? What are you truly variable? Your semi variable costs? You know, and and, and there's, there's art form rather than science, but long as long as you're thinking about the right way, I think you know you're then probably ready for for a venture. What does it take to get Australian entrepreneurs over the line understanding this? Well, I think if it's some of its education, I mean, we we find often when you go into our our um, engagement models with with companies, we we help them do it. We mm-hmm. just do it for them and say, and then when, often there's an aha moment. Oh my God, that's what you're saying, and they need to go back to the drawing board. So I think that's. That's part of it. I mean, we're going to publish some papers on that. So, okay, but you know, I mean, is that in our conversation? Is that a day long? Is that a seminar? Is it? Is it a workshop? Is it a, a semester course? I mean, how how much time does it normally take to get a business across the line? On well, that? we can we can do it in a few days. Right. I think it's it's not a, it's not a difficult exercise. Over a few days, you can do that. We usually do it in a con, in, in conjunction with some co, um, cohort analysis, which again, something not very well understood doing proper cohort analysis. Um, so I think there are two things where if we you know, had one, one or two things we'd we'd we'd, we'd encourage mm-hmm. um, early stage entrepreneurs to think about is is to as you start to get towards you know venture financing. So, if a mo- more of these deals had had some idea of their unit costs, would more of those business plans been have, have been seen by our tree as fundable ventures? Well, no, I mean, we, we get to the answer anyway. So we get right. to the unit costs, and as often that, well, it's not it's not working. You know, you know, you need you're further away than you think from spending a dollar on marketing and actually turning it into real value. You still you still, and I think that's sort of an outcome number one from okay. the unit economics. Outcome number two from the cohort is your product market fit is not as close as you think. Right. You're losing customers after the initial sort of flurry of activity. And so there's more work to be done to, to make sure that you've got a sustainable customer relationship. So for certain classes of, of technology businesses, there really is almost a formula that you can plug your business into and you can get a dial between red and green about really where you stand on the economic survivability of your business. Uh, yes, I think I, mean, I think it's it, it's a journey, but I think I think as you're approaching, you know, certainly series A funding, you 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 can get a dial on whether whether you where you are in that space. But the thing is, if you get a red reading out of that dial, you go, "Okay, here's my measurement points. I've got to change these." You can go very lean startup on this and continue to iterate to get into the green. Right. But it sounds like there's a complete 
complete disconnect around that, though. Well, I, th- I think that's the. I, th- I think when, when you when you talk when you present it back to an entrepreneur, they understand it. Yes. But then it's oh my god, what? I, but I, that's the disconnect I, is that I, they didn't understand it beforehand. They right. didn't even know it was there. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, but I think that's. I mean, that's. Is that is a surprise? I, I don't know, but but it's not. Un- it's certainly not uncommon. In fact, it's almost universal. Yeah. So when do you expect that you'll have your sixty million dollars sort of fully invested in the fund? Well, at at our previous fund, we invested it all in about uh, three years. Mm-hmm. And I think we'd like to do the same thing in in, in entry, three to four years. But we're not in a rush. I mean, clearly, we're in this a cyclical business. Sounds like you can't be in a rush in Australia. Yeah, and I think there's a, there's certainly valuation issues at the moment. I think the market's very very thrush, frothy at the moment, and that's. Even here in Australia, so some of that's actually bleeding it, over from America. I think America. it's probably more so here in Australia. Actually, I think unfortunately, I think the uh, if you look at some of the series, the Series A round funding rounds in, in the US, both sides and, and pre money valuations, and you compare them to the Australia, Australia is um, a little bit less than the US, but not not enough to account for the different market sizes. So I think there's a there's some valuation problems right now that 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 may that may mean that investors are not getting properly awarded for risks they're taking. Wow, Craig. Thank you very much for being on This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks for having me, Mark. Big thanks to our new sponsors, Optus Innovate and Newsmoto, and welcome aboard. Thanks to Felix Warmoth and AnalogCabin.net for their hard work creating a podcast that is consistently a joy to listen to. Thanks to Cameron Adams and Craig Blair for coming on to our show. They have given us a great start to Series 2. We'll be back in a fortnight, and every fortnight until July. Next time, we'll talk to two entrepreneurs making the most of the market in connected labor. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia.